The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus 17, we will continue walking through Exodus in this series, uh, Rescued to Worship. Uh, We uh, have been at this for a while now, and um, Lord willing, we will not get in a hurry. We will just intentionally look and savor at what God has done in redeeming a people to himself. Um, happy Valentine's Day. Um, hopefully, uh, hopefully you're not in the doghouse. Uh, there may be some of you that are, and I don't want to add to that by throwing you there, uh, throwing you under the bus, but uh, happy Valentine's Day. I, I, want to, uh, I want to tell you today about another V-Day. Uh, my wife, uh, when I was sharing this illustration with her, and she said, what's V-Day? And she, wasn't, she hadn't really ever connected the dots between Victory Day. On uh, June 6, 1944, more than 160,000 Allied troops uh, landed along a 50-mile stretch of beach of heavily fortified French coastline to fight Nazi Germany on the beaches of Normandy. General Dwight D. Eisenhower called the operation a crusade in which we will accept nothing less than full victory. More than 5,000 ships and 13,000 aircraft supported the D-Day invasion. And by the day's end, the Allies had gained a foothold into continental Europe. I talked with my grandfather a couple years back, and, and my grandfather was not part of this original invasion storming the beaches there, but my grandfather was on a ship that arrived just after to resupply those troops, and we owe our veterans an incredible um, debt of gratitude. But on this day, they stormed the beaches and allowed the the troops to begin uh, this taking of continental Europe, and the cost in lives of D-Day was enormous. More than 9,000 Allied soldiers were killed or wounded, But their sacrifice allowed more than 100,000 soldiers to begin the slow, hard slog across Europe to defeat Adolf Hitler's troops. Most historians acknowledge that the D-Day invasion was the battle that really won the war. However, it wasn't until May 8, 1945, which was 11 months later, 11 full months later, that the Allies formally celebrated the, the defeat of Nazi Germany, which we refer to as V-Day. So what started with D-Day ended with V-Day. And today, I would like to tell you that in a spiritual sense, we live in between D-Day and V-Day. Anthony Hakima, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name correctly. I apologize to him, but he writes this. Jesus Christ has come and therefore the decisive victory over sin Death, the the devil, the flesh has been won. However, the victory is not yet complete. We live between D-Day and V-Day. Though the enemy has been decisively defeated, there remain pockets of resistance. There are still guerrilla troops to be defeated. There are still battles to be fought. In one sense, those of us who are in Christ, we already possess salvation. But in another sense... We still await that salvation. And today, this text deals exactly with that. I'd like for us to look at this and look at how we live today in between D-Day and V-Day. Let's look at Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 8. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill 
with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side and one on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun, and Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this as a memorial in a book, and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called that the name of it, The Lord is my banner, saying, A hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. I want to walk you through today and show you just some things from this passage. And the difficulty in preaching an Old Testament text is that this was largely in the context of, of a specific people. This was what they went through and this was, uh, this was real to them. But we can't necessarily extrapolate all the things that happened to them and preach that as if those things will also happen to us. We're not expecting today to be wandering in a wilderness and have the people of Amalek attack us. So we have to look at this through the lens of the rest of Scripture, asking the Spirit to be our teacher. And so I want to show you some things that apply to us out of this passage as well. The first is this. We also have an enemy. In this text, their enemy was Amalek. Amalek came and fought with them, and we don't really know much about Amalek. Amalek, the the Amalekites were sort of this mysterious, desert-dwelling people. We know that Amalek was, was the grandson of Jacob's twin brother Esau, but we really don't know much about Amalek other than that. All, of, all that we know is what we know from the Old Testament, and it's very little. We ask the question, well, why did they attack Israel? I want you to note, I want you to point out that, that, that this is the first time since they've crossed the Red Sea that they're now attacked by an out, outside force. Up to this point, their problems have been from within. Their own distrust of God, their own discontentment, their lack of faith. But now they're not attacked with their, these problems that come from within. Now they are attacked by an outside people or an outside force. So why did they attack Israel? Well, we don't know. Up to this point, all we know from the text is that Israel didn't necessarily provoke them. They didn't do anything to provoke them. It could be that, that the Amalekites are there in their territory, and all of a sudden the Israelites are there, and they become nervous about that, agitated by that, and so they want to guard what is theirs, and they attack Israel. It might be that Israel was coming into what was one of the the few water sources of the land, and all of a sudden these 600,000 people or more were about to drain it dry. And so they were protecting what was theirs. We don't really know why the Amalekites attacked Israel, but what we do know is that it was so unforgettable that it left this indelible mark on Israel and particularly on Moses because later in the book of Deuteronomy, he wrote, remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you and he did not fear God. This was a 
cowardly act in the eyes of Moses and all of the Israelites. They they ambushed Israel and not ambushed them from the front. They ambushed them from the rear and cut off those who were the weakest, those who were lagging behind. They cut off probably women and children from the back, and they did not fear God. Well, the biggest, I guess the, the most important point for us is not to really know who the Amalekites really were, but the biggest thing for us is that we would know Who does he represent for us? See, the Amalekites probably had no idea that they were taking their orders from someone besides their commander on the battlefield. Whoever their commander on the battlefield really didn't matter because there was a spiritual battle that was going on and really they were taking their commands from Satan himself. You see, God had promised that through Israel he would bless all the nations and that through Israel he would send the seat of the woman who would crush Satan's head. And Satan knew at this point, they've already been delivered out of Egypt. I've lost my hold on them there, but maybe I can stop them from reaching the promised land. Maybe I can cut the plans of God God off before they ever make it there. And for us, we must be aware that we also have an enemy. We are also on our way, on this pilgrimage, to a land that is promised to us. If you are a believer here trusting in Christ, you are aware, hopefully, that this world, with all that it offers, with all that you can buy by working overtime, this world is not where you will spend forever. We are headed to a land that has been promised to us. We have already been delivered out of the bondage that once held us, which was sin and death and hell. The Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 2 that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. We know that we as believers have been set free from our Egypt because Jesus went to the cross and in a bloody way died there and then was raised from the dead. But like the Israelites, We have been delivered out of our Egypt, but we are on our way to a land that's been promised to us, but we've not reached that final destination yet. And we too have this enemy who will attack us over and over and over and over again throughout this wandering. He will try to prevent us from reaching that land that's been promised to us, or at the very least, he will try to get us to disrespect or bring dishonor to God in some way and rob God of his glory. Satan hates God because God is the one who he was jealous of and who expelled him from the realm around the throne. Even though Satan has been defeated, he and his demonic forces have not surrendered yet. Um... There was a Japanese soldier also in World War II that was found in the Philippines still hiding, still collecting information, still fighting the enemy 29 years after the Japanese had surrendered. 29 years. He was in the jungle staying at his post because he was left there and told, under no circumstance are you to give your life up on your own. We will come back. We will most certainly come back and relieve you of your duty. But until then, stay at your post. And this Japanese soldier never saw his commanding officers because the war ended abruptly 
when, when Japan surrendered, and he stayed for 29 years fighting in the jungle. Well, in the same way, Satan is just like that. He has been dealt this death blow at the cross when Jesus died there and took the full wrath of God for sin in the place of sinners. And when he was raised from the dead, Satan's been dealt this death blow, but he's not yet surrendered. That's why Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul knew that this thing of an enemy was very true and very real. So we have an enemy. Secondly is this. We're called to fight. We are called to fight. I want to give you three areas in which the text shows us that as believers, we have been called to fight. The first is we've been called to fight in the valley. Moses said, he told Joshua, go and select men to fight. And tomorrow I'll go up on the hill, but you go into the valley and you will fight there. And I don't want to overwork this or or cause the text to say something that it shouldn't. So I will largely lean on the rest of Scripture going into the New Testament to show you, I think, what is a biblical principle that we can draw from here. In Romans chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, we're told, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under law but under grace. See, the New Testament tells us that we have been called to fight while we are in the valley. This is not something that we're supposed to just let go and let God, and one day he'll make us fit for heaven. But until then, let's just live according to the way the world says we should. I'm, I'm saddened by my own, my own um, desires at times to live according to how the world says I should. To follow after, to chase after the things that the world tells me that I should have. I, I'm, I'm, I'm aware of that, not as aware probably as I should be, but I'm also aware that I'm not the only one. I'm convinced that the church in America is filled with those who say they love Christ and want to follow him, but they're, they're content to not fight in the valley, to live in the midst of their sin and enjoy it there, knowing that, well, once saved, always saved. And they presume on the grace of God. That's why Paul went on in Ephesians chapter 6 and in verses 13 through 18 said, Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, as shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace, In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, which is able to extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit 
with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Child of God, we've not been called to simply coast through this this world. I was thinking about this this morning in my Sunday school class, and I don't know why my brain drifted there, but we oftentimes, I think I see this in the church with the common Christian. We approach Christianity, we approach God almost as we approach add-ons to a vehicle we might buy from a dealership. We want, to, we want this truck or this car, we get it in our brain and we say, that's what I want, and we look at all the amenities that we can add, the sunroof and the climate the heated seats and all those things. And we say, yeah, I'll take that, I'll take that. And we almost approach God as if he's just an add-on. We live our life, but God's over here. And every now and then, when things get cold enough, we'll push the button and turn them on. The reality is, God is not an add-on. God is the truck. We've been called to fight in the power of the Spirit that lives within us for holiness. Secondly, we've not only been called to fight in the valley, we've also been called to fight up on the hill, up on the hilltop. In verses 10 and 11, look at the posture of Moses. This is strange if we don't do some investigation and let history tell us what this means. In verses 10 and 11, Joshua did as Moses told him. He went out and he found the men. They go fight. Moses goes up and he lifts his hands. And when when, when Moses had his hands in the air, Israel prevailed. But when his hands went down, Amalek prevailed. What in the world is this about? Is this some magic spell by Moses? Is this sort of a continuation of what God was doing in the Exodus through the plagues? It could be. Is this just some... Um, inspirational tactic that Moses uses so that he, he, he looks down and he sees the soldiers and they look up and they see him and when they look up and see him lifting the staff of God, they're inspired and say, yeah, there's Moses, he's up there so we can keep fighting. Is that what this is? Is this possibly some type of and pointing to a future Christ that would lift and spread his arms on a cross? All of these things have been pointed to in, by, by different commentators and really all throughout the years of trying to interpret and find what the Bible really means. Nobody's been able to agree on anything. But the most popular interpretation is this. that what Moses is doing when he goes to the top of the hill is he's praying. And the reason that they say this is because the common Semitic or Jewish posture for prayer was to stand and to lift the hands. And I believe what Moses is doing here on top of the hill is he's, he's totally and completely depending on God. He's praying. When, when Moses prays and when we pray, we take a posture of helplessness. You say, well, I don't want to take a posture of helplessness. I'm a bigger man than that. I don't want to be seen as vulnerable. I got news for you. You standing next to God, you're pretty vulnerable. All of us are. God is glorified when we come to the end of ourselves and we say, God, I am powerless to do anything about this situation or my circumstances. Apart from you, God, I can do nothing. 
And God is glorified when we pray that way. And also in prayer, we, we express confidence that the battle belongs to the Lord. Moses is not just up there saying, God, we are helpless. He's also saying, God, you brought us here and you know exactly what's going on. That battle down there is nothing compared to your sovereignty. God, the battle is yours. We trust in you. We're called to pray like that. We're called to to pray with this, this position, this posture of helplessness, but also trust and confidence in God. In the text, we see that we're called to pray with persistence. The the very fact that when Moses' arms grew tired and he would drop his arms, Amalek would begin to prevail. And finally, Aaron and and her come and they bring a stone and they sit him down on that so that they can come alongside. He's low enough now that they can come alongside and one on one side and one on the other, they can hold up his arms. It shows that we must be persistent when we pray. So many of us, we, we grow weary in prayer, yet God calls us to persistence. But the question begs itself, and I ask this, how can we grow in persistence? We tell ourselves, I'm going to be persistent in prayer, and we find ourselves dozing in the middle of it. How do we grow in this? Well, Jesus said something about this in Luke chapter 11. Chapter 11, after the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, and he tells this this story. Luke chapter 11, verse 5, he said, Which of you has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. Now, we run right by that because we don't understand how important hospitality was in this culture. We're not a very hospitable culture compared to this culture. If, if a guest showed up at your house in this culture and you had nothing to set before them, it was devastating. This is why Jesus, at that wedding, his mother implored him to turn the water into wine. Hospitality is everything here. Jesus goes on. He will answer. Your friend will answer from within. Don't bother me. The door is now shut. And my children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. Jesus said, I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impotence or his persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. There's a lesson here that we must be persistent in prayer. But still, how do we grow in persistence? We struggle here. Well, the answer is in Luke chapter 11, verse 6. It was in what the man said when he came to his friend and asked for bread. Three little words. I have nothing. We grow in our persistence in prayer when we realize that before God we have nothing. And church, I would ask you this morning, are we destitute? Are we aware of our emptiness? Are we aware of just how helpless we are? Are we praying prayers like, God, you must answer this prayer. God, I have nothing. God, if if you don't answer this prayer, Lord, then there is no hope. God, there is no plan B. Are we praying that way, church? 
We pray in persistence when we realize that He is our only hope. I would point out to you that what happens on the hillside determines what happens in the valley. It's an important point that we must not skip over. Moses is up there praying. He's lifting his hands. The brothers and sisters there are, or the brothers on the battlefield are prevailing. In the same way, you and I have been called to fight not only in the valley in a personal way, but we've been called to fight on the hilltop because you and I have brothers and sisters that are being slaughtered daily, both physically, other parts of the world, and also spiritually. You have brothers and sisters right here in this faith family that every day spiritually are being slaughtered. They're being assailed and attacked by an enemy. And we've been called to pray for them. Just as Moses goes up to the top of the hill and prays there for those in the valley, we have also been called to do the same thing. Some of you wonder why you seem to be such an easy target, but yet it still doesn't move you to prayer. You go through your life and you live this prayerless existence and wonder why Satan just continues to pick you off. Let this passage today, let Moses' example call you to prayer. I would tell you this, faith family. I shared Wednesday night with, uh, with those that were there for our prayer gathering that uh, from a book, Tom Rainer's book, Autopsy of a Deceased Church. He studied all these churches that had closed their doors and looked at why, and he interviewed the, the survivors of these, these deceased churches. And one of the main reasons churches died was because they stopped praying together. When, if we don't pray, we can expect to become sick and eventually die. Because when we pray, we're saying, God, this is your church. We can't build this church. God, you build this church. We can build a movement. We can build a gathering of people possibly, but we will never build a church. So God, do that through our midst. The early church devoted themselves to prayer. We must also. That's the next thing in this. We must pray not only with persistence, we must also pray together. Verse 12, Moses needs Aaron and her to lift his arms, and it points to the fact that you and I need groups where we pray together. The early church devoted themselves to this. In Acts 2.42, it tells us that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Later on in Acts, in Acts chapter 12, when Peter has been arrested and he's in prison, the Spirit comes in the middle of the night and an angel leads him out, leads him through locked gates. He, he makes his way to a home where the disciples are gathered praying and the little servant girl, Rhoda, comes to the door and she realizes it's Peter on the other side, but Peter's supposed to be in prison and she's so excited because that's who they've been praying that God would get out of prison, but he's on the other side of the door. She doesn't open the door for him. She runs back to the prayer group and says, Peter's at the door. And they say, no, he's not. You're crazy. He's in prison. Go away. And they argue for a while, and finally they let him in, and Peter walks to the door, and they had been praying for him to be released. Church, we have been given this call to, to, to fight on the hilltop, and we do it together. 
Just as Moses needed someone to lift his hands, so do we. And I would put to you at least three opportunities right here in this church for you to pray with groups of believers. One is on Wednesday night. We meet every week on Wednesday night, whether it's up here in the room down the hall, we meet for prayer. Sometimes we get around to teaching, sometimes we don't. Sometimes we pray all the way through that that time together, but we pray together. And I would encourage you, invite you to be a part of that. I would love nothing more than for us to have to move out of that room and move in here because we have too many people to fit in there. Charles Spurgeon said that that the the prayer, the corporate prayer, those that were praying while he was preaching, he he called it the boiler room of the church. Wednesday night prayer gathering is there for you. We have a prayer team. Nancy Lewis is sitting right back there. She had no idea I was going to point to her in the service. But Nancy is our coordinator and leads up that prayer team. She would love to have a conversation with you as to how you might join in with that prayer team. And either, either take a shift in this prayer room to pray with, with other believers or get on that email list where you can see what's going on and pray for those things. Another opportunity that we have given you here to pray and fight on the hilltop is through life groups. One of the hopes is that in life groups that we will come together and we will confess sin to one, to, to one another. We will help bear one another's burdens. We will hold one another accountable. But out of that, we will also pray. And I got to tell you, one of the sweetest things that happened out of our prayer, out of our first life group at my house last Sunday night was the fact that we got to pray for two particular brothers and sisters in our room. That didn't happen in this context, but there it did. And so I would push you to one of those. We've been called to fight in the valley. We've also been called to fight on top of the hill, but also then, finally, we've been called to fight until we get home. Verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the years of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You say, good night. Is that just a little bit too tough on God's part? Uh, I mean, is, is he being too harsh here? What, what is going on? This is, you hear this a lot of times from unbelievers and skeptics that say, oh, the God of the Old Testament is a God of anger and wrath. And the God of the New Testament is, is, is loving and merciful. I, I like that God better. And the term itself ought to offend us. Because the God of the Old Testament is no different. He, he is the same God of the New Testament. They're one and the same. God is, God is not changing his mind along the way. God is God. He is immutable. He does not change. So what's going on here? Well, the Amalekites would be a thorn in the side of the Israelites for a long time to come. And Joshua needed to know that. Joshua would be, would be the commander that would lead them uh, all the way into the promised land, and Joshua would be the one who would, who would take the army and fight so many times when the, Am- the Amalekites would attack. All the way through his lifetime, Joshua would never have the opportunity to put them away and do what verse 14 promises, that he would utterly blot out their memory. They outlast Joshua. So Joshua would need to know this. Later on, finally, King Saul would be given the opportunity and also the command to completely destroy the Amalekites, but King Saul would disobey and he would spare the king. So the job would be left to Samuel and ultimately to King David to do this. 
Joshua would need to be aware not only of God's prolonged carrying out of this, he would need to be aware of God's promise to do so. Peter ends in one of his commentaries on the book of Exodus, said it this way. The daily battles to be won must be seen within the context of the cosmic battle that Christ has already won. You and I will not fight Amalek. We will not spend a lifetime fighting an earthly enemy. But you and I will spend a lifetime fighting an enemy that is no less real. And Satan seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. We face this enemy. We will face attacks from our enemy throughout our entire lives, but we must remember that God has not only already won the victory, but one day he will forever put our enemy away. This is what Revelation chapter 20 is all about in verse 10 when it says, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Don't let it be so daunting that you quit fighting along the way because he never seems to relent. One day he will be put away. We have an enemy. We've been called to fight. But here's the gospel in this passage. You you ready? Jesus is our banner. Jesus is our banner. In verses 15 and 16, Moses says, Jesus, the the Lord is our banner. Yahweh Nissi, the Lord is our banner. A a banner was this military standard. It was a, a piece of cloth bearing an army insignia that was hoisted up on a pole. And an army would look to it and they would find their identity in it. It was crucial. They would rally around this this banner. It helped them to know who they were. And on the battlefield, it also helped them to keep their bearings. They would look to find their banner. As long as their banner was still flying, the battle had not been lost. And they would keep fighting. Well, the Bible tells us that Jesus is our banner. Isaiah foresaw a time when the Lord would send his son. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 10 says, in that day the root of Jesse, who is Jesus himself, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. In other words, the root of Jesse, Jesus will stand as a banner for his people. Of him shall the nations inquire and his resting place shall be glorious. Just as Moses stood on top of that hill and lifted the staff of God, the the New Testament goes on. John writes in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, that so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that anyone who would believe in him will have eternal life. Church, we need to be aware that Jesus has already won the war. We stand in this place today between D-Day and V-Day. D-Day was that day when Jesus came. It was so fitting. We talked about it last week that Jesus came and stood on the rock and took the full wrath of God for the sins of all who would believe. But V-Day, Victory Day, is not yet here. 
And we need to be aware that we stand in this place, that our banner is the cross. It's the cross where Jesus bled and he died. Our banner is that, and we look to that when we march through this world. Maybe you're in this place and you're almost ready to quit and give up and walk away from this thing called Christianity. Look to the cross. We look to a banner. We don't trust in horses or chariots or strongest militaries in the history of America. We don't look to the government or the politicians that are running for president and who will get in that office. We don't look to closed borders. We don't look to prayer in schools. We don't look to open carry or concealed carry or We, we look to Jesus. Jesus is our banner. And so with that being said, we've been called to fight this enemy that we have and we do so under the banner of Jesus. I'll close just with these lyrics from the hymn on the Christian soldier. The lyrics say, Christ the royal master leads against the foe Forward into battle, see his banners go. Onward, Christian soldiers, marching as to war, with the cross of Jesus going on before. Fight into that banner. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you. And God, we know in this place today that you love us. We know you love us because, God, all the while that we are facing this enemy that loves to attack and is trying to derail us from what you've called us to, to rob you of your glory, Lord, we look to the center of the battle and we see that you didn't stay in heaven, but that you left and came to us. You lived that perfectly righteous life and you ultimately went to a cross that you didn't deserve. And that cross where you were lifted high, we look to as our rallying point. We look to as our source of identity to know who we are. And God, we look to it in the midst of a godless, increasingly wicked culture. And we see that your cross is still lifted high. And we know the battle has not been lost. That the war has already actually been won. God, would you give us the strength to fight on. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to give you an opportunity to respond to reflect and respond, and we've incorporated in that today the celebration of communion. Communion, if, if you're new with us, or even as a refresher to those of you who are not, communion is important. It says something. It means something. It, it doesn't mean that it is a sacrament in the way that some, some understand the word sacrament, in that if you come and you take the elements of communion and you eat the bread and you drink the cup, that that secures for you a right position with God. That's not what we're doing here. But what we are doing here, so fitting with where the, the text has taken us the last two weeks, is that we look back. When we come to the table, we look back to the place where God himself stood on the rock, stood on the cross, and felt the full wrath of God's, uh, the full blow of the rod of God and his wrath. We look to that, and we, that's why we come to this bread and we say, it's 
the, the body of Jesus broken for me. We come to the cup and we say, it's the blood of Jesus spilled out for me in my place. But also, this text today is poignant for this in that not only do we just come to the table and look back at that event, but we also look forward in that one day he will come again. One day he will return and he will put an end to sin and all the effects of sin. Satan, our enemy, will one day be put away and we come to the table and we say, Jesus, thank you for dying in my place. And Jesus, today, help me to trust you till you come again. We want to give you an opportunity. If you're a Christian here who is either a member of this faith family or if you're a member of another church, you're in good standing with that church. You're visiting with us today. We would invite you as well to come and and come to the table and do exactly what I've said, to take the bread, to take the cup in that manner. But if you're here today and you're not a believer, we would ask you just to refrain. Because in coming to this table, if you're not if you if you're not trusting Christ, then what are you doing? You're simply eating a piece of bread and drinking a cup of juice, and it will do nothing for you in the eyes of God. We would implore you first to turn and trust Him. Be reconciled to God by the only way that you might come by looking to the banner that was raised in your stead, that Jesus was crucified there for your sin and he was raised so that you might live. As you come and you stand at the tables today, I would just encourage you and remind you that this is not an opportunity to to be flippant. It's not an opportunity for us just just to casually go through this, to have conversations about the dunk contest last night or the the, the, uh, the debate last night or any of those things, this is an opportunity for us to sweetly and seriously come before our God and worship Him. Come with friends, come with family, but come and remind yourself of what He has done and commit yourself by the power of the Spirit to trust Him till He comes again. If you're here today and, and you have never believed, Or maybe you're here today and you're a believer, but you've strayed, you've been away for a while. Or maybe you're here and you just need someone to talk to or someone to pray with. I'm going to be down here on the front and I would love to be that person. So as Ethan opens this and and you come and people are coming to this table, I would invite you just to come talk with me. I'd love to help you any way that I can. But let's respond to the great gift of the death, the burial, the resurrection of the Son of God. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.